Welcome back to the Wealth Actually podcast, the show that features artists, entrepreneurs, experts, and commentators that will give you the right knowledge, planning, and guidance so you can preserve your assets and enjoy your wealth. Learn more and subscribe today at wealthactually.com. And now, here's your host, Fraser Rice. Welcome back to the Wealth Actually podcast. I'm Fraser Rice. This episode marks a big milestone. We've hit the 100th episode. I was pleasantly surprised to see that we have been downloaded in all 50 states and 114 countries. A big thank you to everyone who listens. As always, it's great for the show's momentum if you subscribe, leave reviews, and share. For this 100th episode, I'm thrilled to have my friend Brian Portnoy on the podcast. Brian is one of the world's leading experts on the psychology of money. He's written multiple best-selling books, including The Geometry of Wealth. Brian is a CFA charter holder and earned a PhD at the University of Chicago. Last, but certainly not least, he's the founder of the wealth education firm, Shaping Wealth, which we're going to talk about here. Brian, welcome aboard. Good to be here. So it's always difficult to ask entrepreneurs this question, but what exactly does your business do? What is Shaping Wealth and how do you describe it to people? So you want last week's version, this week's version, or next week's version? (laughs) Well, we should always skate where the puck is going, but tell us what you're comfortable with. Yeah, for sure. I'm just joking. (laughs) So Shaping Wealth is a content and coaching platform geared toward helping people understand and achieve financial well-being. In one of my books, Geometry of Wealth, I developed this notion of funded contentment, this idea that true wealth is the ability to underwrite a meaningful life, however you define that for yourself. And so our mission statement is crisp and clear, I think. It's funded contentment for everyone. And so we want to help people understand, process, strive for, and sometimes achieve funded contentment. The business is B2B in the sense that we are working with intermediaries in different markets or different audiences as amplifiers of that coaching, that content, and those messages, meaning that First and foremost, we're focused on the wealth management industry. So we're working with financial advisors to help transform into coaches. The industry's evolved a lot. We could talk about that. And then the two other markets that we'll be focused on in the future are one, corporate wellness, and two, universities. So we'll work with HR programs or HR departments to develop corporate financial wellness programming for their benefits packages. And then there's a whole world of things that we can do in the university space to help faculty, staff, and students understand and achieve financial well-being. Terrific. So the wealth industry spends a lot of time certainly on asset management, financial planning, et cetera. What's the gap there? You would think that there would be some real headway made within the industry to try to get people closer aligned to their ultimate goals. What are they missing and how do you slip in there and assist and provide that push? I love that question because it allows us to kind of take seriously the evolution of our industry. I often talk about the fact that I'm born and raised in Pittsburgh. I've seen what happens to very large, very profitable, forward-looking industries when technology and competition disrupt them. So the wealth management industry is not immune to the same forces that disrupted the steel industry, as I saw it growing up. And so if you look back over the last half century, or so, you see a pretty clear arc in terms of where is the activity, where are the margins, where are businesses being built. 
And going back to the beginning, this was a brokerage business. I mean, brokerage has been around forever and just buying and selling of stocks and other securities, very high price, very high margin. That evolved into the 80s and 90s into more of an investing and allocating business, building portfolios for clients. Somewhere along the way, financial planning, which always existed in very small amounts on the margin, became more front and center and as more of a marketing push than an actual legit effort, something called goals-based wealth management was involved. In my view, that push was more about reframing the way product was sold as opposed to actually helping people achieve their goals, but we can get into that or debate it or not. And here we are in the 2020s, and I think building on the wave of financial planning in the industry, which is legit, it's widespread, it's sophisticated, it requires a ton of skill, is that advisors are evolving into coaches, which is different than planning per se, meaning that they need to or they should have certain skills in understanding not just what somebody wants to buy or achieve, but who they want to become and partner with them, serve as a coach. It brings in elements of your values and even more deeply sort of how you define your purpose and who you want to be. Most of the industry, most advisors, this isn't what they focused on. It's not how they've been trained, but it's also something that customers and clients are increasingly demanding. And so I think Shaping Wealth is going to fill a gap in the industry. We're not the only ones focused on this, but it's not a huge group at this point. We're going to help advisors be better coaches in helping their clients understand where they're going and how they get there. So in your book, Geometry of Wealth, you really dive into the concept of funded contentment, which I talk about all the time with people that I deal with saying, this is a concept that is important to grasp because there isn't a sort of an endpoint for anybody's lives. And, and if you're thinking multi-generationally, funded contentment can be part of that component going forward as well. How do you take that concept and the concept of, let's call it, quote unquote, having enough in order to live the life and have the legacy that you want? How does that translate into what you're training or potentially informing advisors and how they deal with their clients? Big picture question. I mean, I think we as an industry, financial services broadly define investment and asset management, wealth management. I think we've defaulted to defining success in many instances based on the performance of our portfolio. So, hey, did my managers beat the market? Did my portfolio overall beat some asset-weighted benchmark? And as a result, we, we get into very technical and I would argue largely irrelevant debates over whether you've outperformed and why. And what that leaves untouched almost entirely is the human experience in this in terms of, well, what were your goals? What values do you want to express? What is your purpose? What's meaningful to you? So funded contentment kind of in the book and in the way that we interact with advisors in our coaching we make a very simple but I think important distinction between being rich and being wealthy. So being rich is the quest for more. Being wealthy is funded contentment, the ability to underwrite a life that's meaningful to you, which does bring in sort of dimensions to that word enough that you mentioned, a word that has many layers and is complicated and fascinating. 
I think much of the dialogue, many of the conversations in wealth management have been about more. They've been about rich. They haven't been about true wealth. They haven't been about enough. And the hard thing about enough is that it's got to be defined authentically from inside you as opposed to there being kind of an external benchmark. I mean, our mutual friend Daniel Crosby has a great line from one of his books that basically says you are your own benchmark. Your life is the benchmark. Like, what is it that you're trying to get done here? Who is it that you're trying to become in the years to come? What is the legacy that you want to leave for better, for worse? And I would argue that net for the better, there's no number that captures that. So more is a number, but enough is a mindset. And because that mindset is slippery, people need help in really coming to terms with what it means to them and then building a plan around pursuing that and achieving it. But much like the Stone of Sisyphus, the quest for funded contentment and the quest for enough is usually ephemeral. You can make progress, but you kind of, after a certain while, for certain neurological, psychological, sociological reasons, you're back at the bottom of the mountain with a rock on your head. <laughs> you're like, okay, we're going to try this again. To me, that's part of the joy of living, the attempt to just keep pushing the stone up the mountain. And if you end up at the bottom every now and then and have to keep going, well, that's not a bad thing in my view. So the industry really is a sales-oriented industry. How do we reprogram advisors to change their questioning, to change their both their information gathering process, but also their interaction with clients to get to what you're describing. And while sensitive to the business orientation of wealth management, getting people to that area where they're able to discover these truths for themselves. Well, where you stand depends on where you sit. And another way of putting that is that incentives matter. So it doesn't matter if you're a good person, bad person, the incentives of the situation you're in, the organization or the institution that you're in, is largely going to drive your behavior. So if the incentives of your company or your organization center around profiting through the sales of investment product, well, then that's what you're going to do. By the way, I'm not actually offering a value judgment on that. People need to make a living and selling good product to good people, that's legit. However, if your incentives move away from selling stuff to helping people so that regardless of what you sell or if you actually have nothing to sell other than your time and expertise, well, then you created a space for a different type of relationship. I mean, if you have a sales quota and you have a product roster that you need to work through in order to hit or to meet or beat your bogey, that's the way you're going to do things. If, for example, a marginal piece of the industry that's, I think, growing relatively quickly is true fee-based planning. So there's no incentive to sell one mutual fund versus another. You're going to charge a basis point fee or a flat fee, an hourly fee, a retainer. There's a lot of experimentation now with different fee structures. Those fee structures, those incentives are going to drive the behavior of people. And I think those who want to get away from the sales culture, have to choose to not be incentivized by making sales. So one of the things that I have seen in my experience is that there's a real difference between what I call kind of current wealth and legacy wealth. And do you draw that same distinction when you're talking to people and talking to advisors? The current wealth I kind of think about in terms of an individual's personal needs, their retirement right up until their death. And then the legacy wealth is what happens after they're there. 
and what happens to the family, their philanthropies, et cetera. Is there a different mindset there? Does shaping wealth do something differently with those different types of wealth? Or is that something that is part of a larger continuum? Let me answer it this way. One thing I've written about that we spend a lot of time on in our programming with our clients are the four sources of contentment in life. So when we talk about happiness and leading a joyful life, happiness is a big, complicated, vague word with lots of meetings, but we can make a distinction between experiential happiness and reflective happiness. And experiential happiness is just sort of your day-to-day. You have a personality set point. You're a cheerful person, you're a morose person, and around that set point, you have good days and bad days, depending on what goes on, and that's sort of kind of your daily experiential happiness. That your reflective happiness is sort of the deeper question to yourself that you ask every now and then, am I leading the life that I want? Is this a good life? Is this going as I had hoped? What do I hope for? That's physically draining to go through that type of thinking. So hopefully none of us are sitting around every moment of every day asking, am I leading a good life versus actually just living your life? (laughs) And so the mental model that I bring to bear on that are what I call the four C's, connection, control, competence, and context. Each is a deep dive, but if you kind of work through neuroscience and psychology, but also theology and literature, you see pretty quickly that there are four big things that drive a meaningful existence for people, our sense of belonging, our sense of autonomy, our sense of our work or our vocation or our craft being sort of definitional of our identity. And then lastly, and the connection to your question is context, which is that broader sense of purpose that historically over the millennia has been defined by two things, faith and place. So our religious context or the spiritual context of you being attached to something bigger than yourself, and then sort of the geographic identity, your patriotism, your hometown pride, things like that. But if you take that sense of being connected to something bigger than yourself, and you combine that with the first C, connection, your sense of what connection, belonging, your tribe, small t tribe in a good way, like this is who I'm with. Well, those two things really add up to legacy. When you're gone, you're gone. But before you get there and you begin to think, okay, I have more money than I'm going to spend, so I need to do something with this and I want it to be meaningful to me now. There are opportunities from a mindset point of view. Remember, more is a number enough as a mindset. There are conversations to be had, there are concepts to be hashed out, especially through this sense of connection and context that are so deeply important to us, where legacy wealth can be such a good and edifying experience for the patriarch or matriarch before they go. The hard part is getting to those conversations and having them be productive and when it's embedded in a multi-generational family and my mind always flashes to succession and just the utter disaster that that family is, but I see it and you probably see it. More money creates a lot of problems. And if not problems, a lot more decisions. It's a lot to deal with. And so it's important that we introduce mental models, frameworks, concepts that allow people to simplify a complex reality and have much better conversations about those things. 
One of the points that I bring up to people all the time is that the legacy discussion isn't limited to the mega wealthy. By the time most people sort of get to the end of their life, there is something left. And that something left can be part of the discussion. And I think it'll be interesting to see how shaping wealth, I think, guides that broader sense amongst the clientele of a lot of these different advisors. And I'm very interested and fascinated to see how that works as you get implemented into that ecosystem. I appreciate that. And I'm curious to see how it goes too, because we have a little bit of content and programming conversation starters on the legacy topic. I mean, we're effectively just getting going in terms of our push to get out into the world. But you're right to say that you don't need tens of millions, let alone hundreds of millions or more to have a real legacy conversation. And when you begin to distinguish monetary or material wealth from other forms of wealth, then the legacy conversation becomes broader and more impactful because most people have something to leave to the next generations if they so choose. Without giving away the secret sauce here, how do you integrate with advisors or how are you planning on integrating with advisors with Shaping Wealth? Secret sauce. I mean, the argument of the book and the mental model for shaping wealth is on the cover of my book. It was meant to be given away. It's circle, triangle, square, purpose, priorities, decisions. It's this three-part mental model that we use to conceptualize and really achieve, at least for a while, funded contentment. So there you go. Everyone can have it for free. <laughs> in terms of the integration, just blocking and tackling we offer training and development for advisors who want to go from good to great. And there are other really smart, ethical, cool people and teams out there doing some similar stuff. Not that many, but a few. And it's clear that there is an appetite in a subset of the financial advice business for people who want to get better at their job, who appreciate that the world is not getting less complex, but at the same time, they need to learn how to simplify. If I think about the types of firms that are out there, we've got clients who are one-person shops or two-person shops. And then we've got other clients who have thousands of advisors on the platform. Absolutely nothing changes about the mission, funded contentment for everyone. Nothing changes about the Lord of the Rings, one model to unite them all. <laughs> purpose, priorities, decision, that's baked into our DNA. The blocking and tackling is, is a lot of these firms, for example, have a head of advisor development or advisor training or client education or client experience. And depending on who you're dealing with, it's a slightly different logistical conversation. But the fact is that we're launching this first course called Building the Behavioral Advisor. We have this concept of the behavioral advisor that really takes into herself or himself a growth perspective, not just as an advisor, but as a human being, where you have improved skills and storytelling, you can be more empathetic, a few other levers to pull. And we integrate with advisory firms on a one-off basis to offer that programming. Our first big beta group launches in March, 2022, so a few months, and then starting in Q2 and beyond, we're going to be running small cohorts through this. It's a really limited capacity opportunity because we want it to be intimate. We want it to be impactful. And then we do have a 
couple or three other what I just call enterprise engagements where there might be some coaching like I just referred to, but they have a whole agenda of injecting behavioral insight into their practice. And we're kind of riding sidecar with them, creating content and other coaching experiences. Cool. Let's veer off on a slightly different path. Talk to me about this entrepreneurial experience of starting a business up, coming from maybe a little bit more safe environment and going out on your own and partnering with a couple of really interesting people who are in completely different time zones. How has that been? Terrifying and exhilarating every day, but fun as hell. In a sense, I should have been doing this all along. I'm a terrible employee. Don't like being told what to do. <laughs> Any boss of mine over the years will tell you how awful I was in that regard. I like that I, and now we, we being Joy Leary and Neil Beige, we have this vision for good things for the wealth management industry first off, and then this broader vision that includes corporate wellness and universities. And I've always, going back 30 plus years in career and school and everything, I've been very comfortable with a blank piece of paper and pretty uncomfortable with executing somebody else's process. So I like having effectively a virtual whiteboard with Joy and Neil on a daily basis where we are building a vision for what an authentic financial well-being content and coaching platform could be in the world. I think our aspirations are, I think, pleasantly limited. This isn't an empire building thing. We're not building this to be a huge thing. I don't know what the word is. When you say lifestyle business, I think most people, maybe including myself, take that to mean you kind of want to be lazy, but you can tell people that you want to do something. But there is a certain lifestyle to it in terms of we want to be focused on the things that we believe really matter to help people lead better lives, or at least contribute one little piece to helping people do that. The experience of being an entrepreneur, not having a paycheck for quite some time now, but having saved for a long time and thought through this, I think it's pretty cool. I'm doing it. I've been thinking about it for a few years. I've been planning on it for a couple of years. I got some great teammates. There are friction points. There are roadblocks and sources of confusion and shit happens. Stuff happens. Sorry. <laughs> I need to deal with that on a daily basis, but I don't want to jinx it, but so far so good. I love the uncertainty. I love, I mean, I sort of wake up every day having a sense of what I want to get done, but I love the open space that I've created for myself and my team. Well, watching you from afar, um, rooting for you really hard. It's a thrill to watch a friend of mine sort of take the plunge on this and convert the IP into something even more world-changing. And I'm also really thrilled and thankful that you're my 100th podcast guest. You were a very early and ardent supporter of my book and my efforts, and that does not go unappreciated ever by me. So, Brian, thank you very much for being on. How do we stay in touch? How do people find you? How do advisors get in touch with you if they hear this and say, hey, you know what? I like what he heard or like what he said. I'd like to know more. Pretty simple. So the website is shapingwealth.com and easy to contact us through the site. And then just like you, very active on Twitter, which has just been a shockingly good, edifying educational experience for years. I made friends like you and many others. And my handle, very simple, at Brian Portnoy. So shapingwealth.com, at Brian Portnoy. Terrific. Brian, thanks for being on and continued success. Thank you so much. 
Thank you for listening to this episode of Wealth Actually, hosted by Fraser Rice, author of the book Wealth Actually and a leading private wealth manager. Head on over to wealthactually.com where you can subscribe to this podcast, get your own copy of the Wealth Actually book, and connect with Fraser directly. We'll see you next time on Wealth Actually.